is Dan Brown here today again with another A Lens a Day Conversations about Information Architecture. And today it is my great honor and privilege to talk to the unparalleled Jorge Arango. Jorge, thank you so much for joining me. Dan, the honor is mine. And uh, geez, unparalleled, man. Uh, <laughs> I feel like I have to live up to that uh, moniker now. Um, well, the good news is I have known you for a long time. And in my mind, you are unparalleled. So just be yourself and uh, we're good. I want to talk to you about uh, process. Uh, you've, you've been doing IA a long time. You were one of the co-authors on the Polar Bear book. Um, uh, and um, I feel like the process that we use to do IA is one of the least revealed things about our work, right? We can talk about kind of the outcomes in terms of findability. We can talk about the outcomes in terms of the impact on the UI design. We can point to metadata frameworks. We can point to search, but how we get there, what, what does that magic look like? So I've been really curious um, to ask folks who work on IA uh, about their process. And where I'd really like to start is where you start what is when you've got a new project in front of you when you're engaging a client for the first time uh, and you're helping them think through some ia problems where do you start that process what's the first thing that you do yeah it's a great prompt thank you for that i'll before i get into it i must clarify that i'm a co-author on the fourth edition of the polar bear book and i'm saying that because the first three editions were um, super influential to me as well. And uh, all props to Lou and uh, Peter for, for writing that book. And that might be a good segue for talking about my process. Um, there are folks in this field that come at it from the information side of things. And I think that um, Peter and Lou are representative of that. Uh, specifically uh, the, their background, both of them come from library sciences. And I see that kind of as the information side of information architecture. I'm someone who comes at this from the architecture side. And my process is very much informed by architecture and how architects approach the, the design of, of an environment, which is to say, um, it involves, first of all, coming to an understanding of what it is that we're supposed to be making. In, in architecture, um, they talk about the, the program, right? Like if, if, you're, um, if you're commissioned to design a hospital, a hospital has certain requirements that it must fulfill. It's a, you know, the building must be able to fulfill certain requirements in order to function as a hospital. And, um, an architect needs to be cognizant of what those requirements are. And they might be unspoken, right? Like the, the, the hospital might actually not be a good example because the people um, who are hiring an architect for that might be very savvy about what goes into making a hospital. But, uh, but it still is on the designer to uh, deeply grok the, the program. You know what? What spaces does this uh, does this building need to provide in order to accommodate this function? How do people move through the space, uh, and so on? And that involves research. It involves understanding the context. It involves understanding the the functions that the environment must um, 
must uh, accommodate. Uh, it involves understanding the mental models of the people who are going to be using the environment. Um, and all of those things are true for information architecture. So for me, it involves first coming to grips with the, the, you know, the equivalent of the program. What is it that we're making here at a very high level? Um, and then really grokking the context, understanding what, um, what that entails, what making that sort of thing entails. And then uh, the next step is manifesting that understanding back to stakeholders in ways that are meaningful to them so that they can help you make decisions about the structure of the environment. That is easier said than done because folks like us usually operate um, uh, at a very abstract level. Uh, and and I, I often reference your book uh, on, um, on communicating design. There's a chapter there about um, conceptual modeling, right? Which is to me, it's like that, that's one of the central artifacts for, for an information architect, but it's an artifact that for the people who we are serving might not be very meaningful. It might be too abstract, right? So, um, so I see it as a process that involves, first of all, coming to grips with the program, the context, um, then synthesizing that understanding into a set of structures that will serve the needs of the people who will interact within that environment and doing so in an increasingly more granular and higher fidelity um, set of artifacts that help people make decisions as you pointed out it's not easy but uh, that's that's the challenge right uh that that was great uh and and you said a lot of things that really really resonated uh with me as as a IA, I often see the design process as um, just steps in higher and higher uh, fidelity, um, which I'm not sure is true of other aspects of user experience. Not that those are are um, unreasonable. Um, it's just a different way of looking at it, right? You and I, as IAs, kind of start with our head in the clouds uh, a little bit, thinking about these abstract representations, and then increasingly need to bring that uh, down to earth, right, and kind of make it more uh, concrete. But I want to come back to the architectural or the conventional architectural uh, metaphor. Obviously, this is something that uh, a metaphor that we've used uh, for a long, long time. Um, and uh, I love it because I think it's easy for us to kind of imagine and put ourselves in a building and imagine sort of creating that space, thinking of virtual spaces as physical spaces. Um, but obviously, it's got some shortcomings, right? Obviously, it can't do everything that we can do in the virtual space and vice versa. I guess, how do you, you know, when you were talking about um, a building's program, a set of requirements around that building, and then people imagining themselves in the spaces of that building to achieve those requirements. Um, can you maybe talk in a little bit more detail about how we do that in the IA world, where again, we don't have physical spaces what are some of the methods that you use to help folks who um, maybe are not used to thinking in those abstractions to uh, to come along uh, for the for the ride, as you said, so they can help you make decisions about the structure of, in this case, the virtual environment? Yeah, that's a great question. 
they, while it's true that there are many differences between architecture for physical environments, such as buildings and the sort of work that we do, if you step back far enough, there is something that both have in common, which is that both disciplines essentially create contexts that enable certain activities and that encourage and discourage certain behaviors. The, the difference is that building architecture does that through the creation of physical places, right? So uh, the, the, the room that I'm sitting in right now is, um, is a, a space that, that I've configured for my use as an office by, um, by setting furniture in a particular way, by, um, I, I'm surrounded by books here. You, you, you can't see that in the video, but uh, you can see that I have a microphone here and uh, you might be able to tell that I have lighting in front of me because there's a window behind me, right? Uh, and I've, I've intentionally configured this space to enable um, the sort of conversation that we're having right now. So I've created a context that is conducive for me um, uh, for me to be able to, to work, to do the work that I need to do. And information architects, while not dealing with uh, furniture and walls and, and these physical things, we are also creating context. We're doing it through language though. And when we define a set of distinctions, which is what I think is kind of part of the essence of what we do, such as are manifested in something like a navigation bar, you are sending the people who visit that place, be it a website or an app or what have you, you are, you are sending the messages about what is expected of them. And I, I have this exercise that I do with students where I will show them websites where I've covered up all the branding and just um, just show the the labeling and and the navigation bars, and I have them guess at what kind of place they think that might be. Um, and if you read labels in a navigation bar that say things like uh, accounts or credit cards, um, uh, deposits, or what have you, you your you know your your brain starts getting in the mindset that maybe this is something like a bank, right? And if you think that you are in a bank you're going to have expectations about what you can and cannot do there, much like you do when you visit a physical bank. And that is, um, that is something that, that, again, I think that we have in common with, with building architects. And I use that uh, analogy in bringing folks along who might be grappling with, with these abstractions, because they the goal ultimately is not just to make it easier for people to find things, which is kind of traditionally what IA is associated with, but also to understand things. And context is a huge part of how we understand what we're looking at. That was awesome. Um, so uh, I wonder if you could share a story with us uh, of a project uh, um, where you really saw the light bulb go off 
for uh, one of your stakeholders or clients or something where it just sort of all uh, clicked, where they kind of understood what you were trying to do in terms of the architecture or, or maybe they understanding kind of some of the, the IA challenges uh, that they didn't really realize before. For me, that's one of my favorite moments in a project where the the client or the stakeholder, whoever I'm working with, can kind of um, engage at that level because uh, they, they're kind of seeing all the pieces click into place. Do you have a story that you can share with us about that? I'm not going to share a, a specific story, but I'll share kind of like a general um, pattern that I've seen happen a lot. That's great. Which is... Um, part of the early stages of the process, as we were talking about earlier, have to do with sussing out the context that we're dealing with, right? So when I say that we are designing context, we, um, we must be cognizant of the fact that we are not originating the context. We are stepping into an already existent, um, an already existing context. And we have to uh, come to grips with what is there. And we have to come to grips with the degree to which the people who are expected to use that place understand the context or need to be brought along. And one of the things that I find often during the process of um, understanding the context myself is um, having stakeholders realize the degree to which the language that they use to describe their worlds have become provincial and insular and um, rarefied somehow. And in early workshops, back when um, we had physical workshops in the before times, uh, I, I would set aside a wall in the conference room where, where we were meeting to put up um, stickies with terms that were either unclear or were clearly like jargon, right? And I call that the language wall or the language board. And throughout the workshop, I'd be collecting these as they, as they would surface, I would like note them and put them up on the wall. And people are not used to seeing the language they use being manifest physically in the walls of the place, you know, in, in their surroundings. And just, you know, at the end of this experience, having a, a wall filled with these terms would be uh, invariably eye-opening, right? Because all of a sudden it became clear that, hey, we have this specialized language we're using here. And uh, depending on who the target audience is for this thing that we're making, if we're aiming to uh, appeal to a broad audience, that's clearly not going to cut it, right? So um, I, I find that invariably illuminating. And I think that one of the benefits to doing information architecture work there is there are explicit benefits which is you know you end up with products that are more um, that are easier to use that are more findable and understandable and so on but there's also these kind of implicit values that come out of it and one of them has to do with this realization that we are 
that uh, we, we operate within these language structures that we don't acknowledge and that um, define so much of our understanding of our work. Uh, that was great. I'm glad I asked you that. I was going to transition over to the lens a little earlier, but I'm, I'm glad that I asked you that question because I really um, like this notion of sort of um, making explicit some of the things that the stakeholders or the organization takes for granted. Um, and I sometimes find myself not wanting to make that stuff explicit because I don't want to kind of remind them of those words. You know what I mean? Like they, like those words are so entrenched and my, I feel like my job is to sort of pull them away from that language, right. To sort of entrench a new structure, but it's a good reminder that one of the best ways to get them thinking differently uh, about their structures is to put the ones that are uh, very, uh, that are very entrenched in front of them. So they can sort of look in that, in that mirror. Um, but all of this talk does, I think, bring us nicely to the lens uh, that uh, we picked. Can you tell us what lens uh, we picked and uh, maybe describe it in your own words? Yeah, the lens is called inverse implication. And I'll, um, I'll just read the first sentence of the card here. And, and by the way, I, I have the, the card here with me. And anyone watching this, if you don't have dance deck, I don't know what you're thinking. You should really get this. Um, it says, categories included in the structure tell us as much about what's not there as what is, right? Um, and, uh, and there's obviously more to it. Uh, on the card here, but the, and this this has to do with this notion of of context, in that we don't experience concepts in isolation. Usually, concepts come in sets, right? And those sets change how we think about them. Um, an example that I usually use to talk about this is the word bat, B-A-T, right? So the, the word bat, if you have a set of terms and the word bat appears next to the word ball, you understand bat to mean a particular thing. That same sequence of three characters, B-A-T, if it appears next to the word cave, you're going to assume that you're talking about a different sense of bat, right? Bat can, can have two meanings in, in English. And the meaning is clarified by its adjacency to another term, right? So, and, and either one of those sets brings to your mind a set of other ideas, right? And, and might... Uh, might even affect you uh, emotionally in some way, right? Like if I say a cave of bats, you might feel icky. <laughs> and, and, uh, and if I say it's a, it's a, 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 a bat as in, as in a baseball bat, it might trigger memories of uh, going to a game and it might be uh, more cheerful memories, right? So, um, so these things have... Um, have an important effect in how we experience uh, concepts. And the, 
the idea behind this lens, this idea of inverse implication is that we, as I understand it now, uh, we fill in the holes when the, when the sets are missing elements because we're so used to experiencing them in, 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 in the sets, right? And um, oftentimes not expressing the concept as part of the set kind of begs it's um, begs the question why isn't this here and it brings it to mind anyways right it's the it's the uh, don't think of an elephant uh, challenge right uh, if if I um, if I present you with a set of concepts that you associate with a bank and those concepts don't include uh, deposit accounts you're going to be wondering why that bank does not have deposit accounts. And, uh, and um, I actually do have an example of that uh, in my career. Um, I worked um, a long time ago, I worked for a, a bank that um, whose website did not have the ability for customers to log in to view their accounts because um, it was not a retail bank, and it uh, and it just wasn't appropriate for for the type of organization they were at the time, and um, and that kind of begged the question, right? Because we've come to associate banks, especially like bank websites, with uh, places where we expect to have two parts of the environment: the part that is a public part of the environment, where we read like marketing materials and a private part of the environment where we can uh, manage our accounts and so on. And we expect there to be a threshold through which we cross from the public place to the private place. And if you don't have that threshold, people are gonna wonder, it's like, whoa, is this a bank? Like you're, you're, you're somehow defying part of the convention that has been established for that type of context. And uh, th this happens in physical places as well. It's not unique to, to digital environments. That's how I understand this idea of inverse implication. No, uh, I like that. I'm glad you brought it back to the bank because when you were describing the exercise earlier of how seeing a set of terms, even without the, the, the brand name, um, helps us or, or sort of immediately implies a certain uh, environment context that we are in. Um, I was thinking, Yes, it also creates these expectations that we have based on that adjacency, based on that context. Uh, and when we see key terms missing from that, the designer may think they're being clever in trying to uh, refactor this or come up with a new way of thinking, but ultimately they are perhaps uh, betraying uh, the user who has comes with certain not unreasonable expectations. One of the things this lens makes me think about is um, the deliberate decision to leave things out. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to think of a time in my career when I did that, and it's hard for me to think about it, but I, I, I wonder if that's part of what this lens is trying to get someone to do is, are you specifically creating a negative space to paint a slightly different picture of what people can expect? Does that resonate with you 
at all. Yeah, it does. And I'm trying to think too about um, cases in which I've done it explicitly. I think that it's more common for it to happen kind of accidentally. Yes. Where something is left out. Um, there's another angle to this, and it might be worth talking about, um, which is that establishing a distinction between two things implies that those are the choices available when there might be a third position which is ambiguous. <laughs> And, I, and I'll use an example that I, that, that I, uh, of what I mean, by, uh, which I, I've brought up often before, but uh, I think it helps here, which is um, how I explain the concept of information itself. I, I say that information is um, anything that, um, that helps us reduce ambiguity uh, and, and helps us make decisions, right? And the example that I used to talk about this is when I walk my dog through my neighborhood, I, I, I live in a, um, a fairly suburban place where houses have front yards. And uh, when I walk my dog, there are some houses that have put out little signs on their yards that say that I can't let, uh, that, that you shouldn't uh, let the dog uh, poop there, right? And... Uh, Upon placing those signs in their yards, the owners of those homes have introduced a distinction into the environment, into the neighborhood, right? It doesn't just apply to their yard. All of a sudden, there are two types of lawns. There are lawns that allow, that, 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 that forbid dogs from doing their thing there, right? And then there are yards where you can assume it's okay, but you don't really know, do you? I mean, the fact that they have no sign doesn't mean it's okay. It just means that the owners of those homes have taken no position on the matter. So they, the people who have placed the signs have disambiguated the situation for themselves. But in so doing, they have introduced a distinction that somehow forces the owners of the other homes to either take a position implicitly by not putting a sign, or uh, maybe maybe there should be signs that say it's okay to go here, you know. <laughs> um, but but there's uh, there's that aspect to it as well, right? Like this notion that uh, when you introduce a distinction, there's a, there's a duality now, right? And uh, and that duality is going to apply to parts of the environment that uh, that may not be taking a position one way or another. Uh, this is nuanced and, and, and I realize that it might be uh, a little abstract, but, um, but I suspect that it's, a, it's an important issue when thinking about uh, making distinctions that are going to be meaningful to folks, especially yeah. environments with a lot of ambiguity or complex terms. I'm working on a, a, a product now uh, that's um, it's like an educational product for cardiologists and um, uh, I've been thinking about sort of the opposite, which is like there are topics that we need to include, not because it's uh, there's a lot of content around it, but because if those topics are missing, it undermines the in the navigation, it undermines the authority of the product, 
right? A cardiologist shows up, they want to see that, and they know this thing is the real deal. Whether the content ends up being there or not, uh, uh, and one of those distinctions that's come up is invasive versus non-invasive procedures, right? Cardiologist is not a surgeon, but they can do things that are considered invasive. But now you've got me wondering, like, is there a third option? Is there, is there, the world is not entirely binary. Maybe there are some procedures that have a little bit of both in them. Maybe there are some procedures that you wouldn't really qualify uh, or label in one of those uh, in one of those ways, but by putting those labels uh, in there, we sort of create this potential dynamic for ourselves of well, what about that procedure there? Uh, it's not taking a position on whether it's invasive or non-invasive, whether I can poop there or not. So uh, it's, it's a kind of an interesting uh, lens to bring uh, to bear on this stuff. Absolutely. Um, I was going to, uh, so one of the things I've been asking everyone uh, is to uh, maybe put your teaching or coaching hat on. I feel like uh, we've got a lot of uh, designers entering the field of user experience, but don't have the same um, uh, exposure to information architecture the way you and I have had over the years um, and don't necessarily get to try out their IA chops. I think there's a lot of pressure on uh, design teams these days to move very fast, to not take the time to think uh, about these underlying structures. So I'm asking folks to think about what advice would you give a designer newer to the field um, on how to apply this lens or really any IA kind of mindset to their problem. If you were coaching a designer newer to the field, what would you tell them uh, about this lens or about IA in general? The advice I keep giving folks is to become a master of language. If you're going to do this, if you're going to be into information architecture, you have to come to the realization that we are in the business of making and managing distinctions. And we make distinctions through language. And language is a very peculiar thing in that we use it all the time, pretty much from the moment we uh, wake up to the moment when we close our eyes at night. And we do it without really thinking about what we're doing. So it becomes second nature. I think our friend Andrew Hinton uh, references the image of like uh, fish in water, right? Like, and we are like fish in water when it comes to language. And if you start paying attention to how we talk, what we say, and the meanings of the things that you're saying and the meanings of the things that people around you are saying, you will start realizing that um, there is tremendous power in mastering language, in being aware of what we're doing when we language. I'm using language as a verb. Uh, and, um, and one of the best ways to do that although it's very time consuming, um, 
One of the very best ways to do that is by learning a second language. Because when you learn a second language, and I, I was very fortunate to, to learn English is not my native language. I was very fortunate to learn English when I was very young. Uh, but but, uh, but uh, I learned a, a, another language when I was older. So I have had the experience of, uh, of, of picking up a language and having to deal with the, 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 this challenge of like, oh my gosh, expressing myself in, in, this, in this different language and having to map what I know to this other set of codes. It forces you to acknowledge that language is not this inherent thing. It's, it's completely contingent and uh, emergent and uh, changing and malleable. And, um, and it's a design material, you know? Uh, and I think that, uh, that learning a second language, hard as it, as it is and time-consuming as it is, is a very powerful and, uh, and visceral way of coming to grips with that fact and, and coming to the understanding that we can, um, we can create these language-based constructs that influence how people understand the world. Jorge, I think we will leave it right there. That was fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. I really do appreciate it. It was a pleasure catching up with you, Dan. <laughs>